Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is the channel that loves atheists. And today we're going to take a look at rationality rules um, in a video in which he thinks that he has shown that God, so defined by the Abrahamic religions, does not exist. That's right. It's a positive argument that God doesn't exist. Um, that's unusual and unusual the route that he goes. Or maybe it should be more unusual than it is. But um, we're going to take a look at these clips. But first, I want to say, again, as always, nothing I'm saying is intended to be offensive to the individual. Um, these are uh, aimed at the ideas. Ideas aren't persons. And so we can respond to ideas. Um, first of all, uh, Stephen starts off this video by pointing out that the often repeated phrase that you, can pr you can't prove a negative is actually false. You can prove a negative in some cases. And he points out rightly that the way you do that is um, in some cases where you can, you can do some uh, empirical observation. But even when you can't, if you can show that there is something logically incoherent in the nature of the thing, then you can show that it does not exist. The example he gives, I think, is a teapot that is made entirely out of ceramic, but then also entirely out of steel. Such a teapot cannot and does not exist. We don't know that because we've traveled all over the universe looking for this teapot, but just because we know that by definitions there, that would involve a contradiction and contradictions are not possible. And so that's an incoherency that you would look for in this. There are no married bachelors. There are no square circles. Um, so in the same way, he rightly thinks that you could show in principle that God does not exist if you could show that there is something contradictory in the nature of God so defined by a particular religion. And so he sets out to do that throughout the rest of the video. Now, that's no small point. I think that's a really important point to, to, to make, that when people say that um, if you have someone who's an atheist, not a atheist in the sense of lacking a belief, but an atheist who actually holds the position um, God does not exist and, and is trying to, to hold that position, and they try to say something like, look, you can't prove a negative. Well, then in such a case, you could point them out. No, actually, if you're making a claim that God does not exist, you bear a burden of proof too. And actually, in principle, you could show that something doesn't exist by showing a logical inconsistency or a contradiction in the nature of that thing. So I actually agree with him on all of that. And I think that that's uh, pretty important and noteworthy. That was the point of his video after all. But then he spends most of the video trying to show that you actually can do that with God so defined by the Abrahamic religions. So let's go ahead and jump into this and take a look. By the way, I just want to say right at the beginning that if you are new to the channel, uh, not only do we do responses to atheists, but if that's not really your thing, I have a uh, Bible study I'm doing through the book of Genesis. There's like 30 plus hours already available, and you can get that and check that out at uh, trinityradio.org slash, or actually go to trinityradio.org and click on the verse by verse, or you can go to on this this YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter, Trinity Radio's YouTube channel, you can go to the playlist for that, and we would love to see you do that too. We don't just want people to be able to defend the faith. We want them to know what the faith says, and so both of those things are important. With that, let's jump into uh, this discussion from Stephen Woodford on the definition of God. Are one, a transcendent and eternal being who created absolutely everything, which is actually a definition of the deistic God, not the Abrahamic God. Now, hold on just a second. He's going to give us a definition of the 
um, of the Abrahamic God specifically in just a moment, but what he's just said is not true. He says this is um, a definition of a deistic God and not of the Abrahamic God, a transcendent and eternal being who created absolutely everything. That would certainly be consistent with the Abrahamic God. It just doesn't give you all the information that you would like. If you said, who is Braxton Hunter? And, and someone said, well, he's a male human being. That would actually be a definition of Braxton Hunter. It just wouldn't give you all the information that one would like to have, depending on the questions that one is asking. Um, it actually might be a perfectly fine question to ask if, say, you were trying to sort out um, humans from alien life. Uh, well, who's Braxton Hunter? Oh, he's a human guy. You'd sort him out, right? Just pointing out that that definition is consistent with God. It's just not all we'd like to say about that. But let's go ahead and see what else he has to say. And two, a transcendent and eternal being who created absolutely everything, who's omnipotent, meaning that it has unlimited power, omniscient, meaning that it has unlimited knowledge, omnipresent, meaning that it's everywhere at all times, and omnibenevolent, meaning that it's all loving and infinitely good. Oh, and it's worth noting that many theists additionally define this being to be just, merciful and responsible for imbuing mankind with free will. Okay, now just and merciful, yes, but imbuing mankind with free will. Now notice something. If he's going to shoot down the Abrahamic God, he, he can't give himself like, uh, you know, extra stuff that if you shot those down, it wouldn't actually shoot down the whole ball of wax. I mean, you, you're extending out the definition beyond what's necessary and sufficient to have the Abrahamic God. I mean, after all, there are a lot of Calvinists who don't believe that we have what is called libertarian free will or the kind of free will that he's talking about there. So um, that really shouldn't be necessarily part of your definition. Now, it's something that I hold to. And so he's going to offer a criticism of that in combination with God's omniscience in just a few minutes. And I'm going to actually respond to that. But I'm just saying I wouldn't have to because that's layering on stuff to make it easier for you to refute, to make a longer video, I guess, that doesn't actually need to be there to defend the Abrahamic God. So just pointing that out. But let's move on. Now, admittedly, the first definition can't be proven false because like the existence of an intangible, invisible, and undetectable celestial teapot, one would need unavailable and perhaps even impossible resources and knowledge to do so. But the second definition can be proven false, and we can do so by demonstrating that one or more of its attributes are internally contradictory, that one or more of its attributes contradict a law of thought, or that two or more of its attributes contradict one another. And so, Let's name but just a few of these contradictions, starting with omnipotence. Okay, so, so far I'm, I'm with him. Stephen's right uh, in, insofar as if he could show a contradiction in these characteristics, then he would have shown that God so defined does not exist. And so we're going to look now and see whether he's able to do that um, because he's making some pretty bold claims here. In the video, he's already said he thinks you can show that the Abrahamic God does not exist, which is pretty big claim for um, anyone out there who might be a quote-unquote lack theist holding this position. So let's, uh, let's take a look and see what he has to say about omnipotence. As observed by the 12th century polymath Averroes, one can prove that the very concept of omnipotence is self-contradictory by asking the simple question, can an omnipotent being create a stone so heavy that it cannot lift it? If the answer is yes, then the being's power is limited because it cannot lift the stone. But if the answer is no, then the being's power is limited because it cannot create the stone. And hence, an omnipotent being cannot exist. 
Now it's worth noting that while this crushes the most popular definition of omnipotence, it doesn't crush all definitions. But that's a rabbit hole we'll dive down at a further date. Yeah, let's not get into the actual difficult rigor of responding to what Orthodox Christianity has articulated and understood for t almost 2,000 years, if not 2,000 years. Let's go with this kind of sort of cartoony sort of explanation uh, that we see all the time in pop culture. Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? I mean, honestly, that may have seemed like an impressive thing at one time, but um, here's the problem with this. And, and if you're an atheist listener, I hope that you will recognize this. This is actually really bad form. And what I mean by that is um, it's not that nobody's ever said that. It's that if you're going to put forward, if you're going to purport to have shown that the um, Abrahamic God does not exist, and then you're going to put out an easily, an easily defeated criticism like that, that's just not good for atheism. That's not good for YouTube atheism. That's the sort of thing. Um, that makes it really easy for a Christian who has thought about these issues for five minutes or used Google to look up an answer to, or to that objection to shoot down. You don't want to do that. I don't know why Rationality Rules would think it's a good idea to put out that criticism and not the more rigorous uh, response that one could make. I think he knows that that's because other definitions of omnipotence completely avoid any problem whatsoever. And it's not that those were created ad hoc. Those have been around for hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of years. So, um, you know, let's let's uh, let's consider that for just a minute. Uh, I, he says uh, that that's the most popular definition and that we have all these different definitions. Well, how about we go back to one from the early church? How about we go to origin? Um, this is from 248 AD from ANF volume four, page 553 in, in the copy that I have. We, however, do not, this is, this is origin. We, however, do not betake ourselves to a most absurd refuge saying that with God, all things are possible. Now he's, he's saying, we say that we say with God, all things are possible, but it's not the way you understand it. For we know how to understand this word all as not referring either to things that are non-existent or that are inconceivable. But we maintain at the same time that God cannot do what is disgraceful, since then he would be capable of ceasing to be God. For, so and if nothing else, God can't do anything that's against his moral character. Most Christians you will encounter who are just people in the pews will say, um, yeah, God can do anything, but God can't lie. Now, you might see that there's a problem with saying God can do anything and then say God can't lie. But this is, of course, the very issue that Origen is raising and that I'll clarify in greater detail in just a moment. For if he do anything that is disgraceful, he is not God. Since, however, he lays it down as a principle that God does not desire what is contrary to nature. So now I want you to, I want you to stop right there for a moment, and I want you to think about this for just a moment with me. Let me get that out of the way. So um, when we say that God can do anything or God can do all things or nothing is impossible for God, we're not talking about logically contradictory things. Logically contradictory things aren't things. That's the simplest explanation for that. It, do, it doesn't even make any sense to say, could God create? You're basically asking, could God make a married bachelor? Well, no. Oh, so there's something God can't do. No, that's not a thing. You're asking, you're asking God to do something that would make him nonsensical. This is absurd. This is the most ridiculous thing you'll, you'll ever run into. And Christians know this if they've thought about it for five minutes. That's why he says, oh, there's some other definitions out there. Yeah, basically the one that most uh, uh, Christian thinkers have used for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And that being that God can do anything that does not involve a logical contradiction. 
it's just not that hard. So this one just fails right on the face of it. Well, what else has he got? A contradiction that is a game-ending flaw, however, is the combination of omniscience and human free will. Because if a being has unlimited knowledge, omniscience, then it knows all things, including the future. But if the future is known, then free will, the ability to consciously do otherwise, isn't possible. Okay, so now he says this is a game-ending criticism, right? This is a game-ending criticism. Oh, by the way, I think I missed one. I, I did miss one. Th this is supposed to be one of his criticisms. Let's go ahead and listen to it first. Moving on, let's now look at just some of the attributes that contradict one another. First off, if a being is omnipotent, then it's necessarily already omniscient and omnipresent because it must already know everything and be everywhere in order to have unlimited power. And so saying God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent is like saying that the sea contains water, hydrogen, and oxygen. Considering that hydrogen and oxygen are constituents of water, one might as well say the sea contains water. Now so in other words, all he's saying is that God's omnipotence entails these other two and is thus consistent with these other two. Thanks, I'm not seeing a problem. Sure, this isn't so much of a game-ending flaw, but it certainly demonstrates that theists tend not to understand the nature of these concepts. Or we just like to be specific with our language. When you're doing theology and you're talking about God's nature, you want to be specific and talk about what it is you're talking about. It's important to have conversations about God's omniscience um, in a distinct way that is separate from these other things. Just grab a systematic theology text, whether you believe any of this stuff is true or not, and open it up to uh, theology proper and look at the nature of God, and you'll see that it's important to have these categories. It's <laughs> far from being that Christians don't know what they're talking about with these things. It's that, no, we understand it with great clarity. And because of that, we want to be very specific with our language. But all right, let's go back to the free will issue now. So he says that there's a big problem with God being omniscient and us having free will, because then that would mean that we don't really have free will because whatever God knows is going to happen will happen. Now, this is where, again, we need to be really specific with our language, Stephen. And that is to say that, yes, whatever God knows will happen will happen. But that doesn't mean that whatever God knows will happen um, couldn't have happened otherwise. Now, here's, here's why that's important. This is very simple. And I just wonder, before making a video like this, if anyone ever like pushes back from the desk and thinks about things, what could a Christian say to this? Because this isn't this diffi that difficult. It's actually covered in not only many theology books, it's covered in the Oxford Handbook on Free Will as well, where Alvin Plantinga, uh, where there's discussion of Alvin Plantinga's response to this. But let's just put it very simply this way. God foreknows, because he has omniscience, right? You're positing omniscience and free will to see if they work together. All right, God knows all future events before they happen. That means God knows what we will freely do. So what God knows, God knows because that's what we will freely do. So our actions in the present are the reason God knows what they will be in the past. Now, you can get complex with this. So, for example, people have asked um, open theists who don't believe that God exhaustively has foreknowledge in the same way that we think he does. They, they might challenge us with this and say, well, wait a minute. Um, if, you, if God has exhaustive foreknowledge, that means he knows everything, including all future events. Well, then that means that certain uh, individuals could have made God wrong. So let's say Jesus predicts that, uh, that Peter is going to deny him, right? Okay, um, then when it, could, could Peter have just not denied Christ? 
and then Jesus would have been wrong? No, because God knows what Peter will freely do. If Peter had, after that moment, freely chosen not to, to deny Christ, then God would have known that in eternity past, and Jesus would have predicted otherwise. What we do freely in the present is what God knows in the past. So if God knows we will do X, is it true that we will certainly do X? Yes, but it doesn't mean we had to do X. It means if we had done otherwise, that's what God would have known. Now, I don't, there are some people I've noticed who there is like a limitation in their ability to comprehend that. But I'm telling you, there's just no, nothing problematic about that. You can say, I don't buy it. Well, that's fine. You don't have to buy it. But the question is, is it consistent? He's looking for a contradiction here. But putting all of that aside, is this even necessary for me to defend? No, because as we said a moment ago, the definition he gives of Abrahamic religions and wrote out and typed out and put up there on the screen does not require anything about free will. And there are a lot of Christians who do not hold to free will. So what's the problem? I only defended it because I do. But I'm just saying, if you're attempting to shoot down Abrahamic religions, that's not the way to go. And he really only gives one other. He gives the, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it, which is trivially dismissed with proper definitions. And then he gives this one, which doesn't, wouldn't even shoot it down on his own terms. And then we get one more, I think. I think we get one more. So let's go on to this one. And this is, frankly, the, the best thing that he says about this. This is the best attempt. Um, but we have responses to it as well. Let's see what he says. And finally, let's look at two omni-attributes that are incompatible with reality, that being omnipotence and omnibenevolence. If a being existed with these attributes, then it would necessarily create the best possible universe, because it has unlimited power, omnipotence, and it's infinitely good, omnibenevolence. But one can easily think of a universe that's better than this one, for example, one in which innocent babies aren't born with cancer. Or to put it another way, and to expand upon a quote from the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Now there's no two ways around this. If a being exists that is willing to prevent evil, that is omnibenevolent, but is not able, that is, does not have the power to do so, then this being is not omnipotent. Fair enough. Epicurus continues, is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Again, this sentence is logically valid. If a being exists that is able to prevent innocent babies from being born with leukemia, but is not willing, then this being is a malevolent, colossus prick. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? And again, this sentence is logically valid and I personally think that it's the nail in the coffin for most theists. If a being exists that is able and willing to prevent evil, then it logically follows that evil cannot exist. But evil does exist, and therefore this being does not exist. Okay, now this is the first one he's put forward that actually does pose some kind of a, at least in people's minds, some kind of a threat to God's existence so defined. And it has been around a long, long time. The hedonist philosopher Epicurus, um, as he as he mentions, raised this thing. And so it's often called the Epicurean paradox or the Epicurean argument or something like that. And here's the problem with it. The way that Stephen has just said things, it's a logical argument from evil. Now, 
uh, there are two kinds, at least, of arguments from evil that atheists might bring. There is the logical argument from evil that we just saw, and then there is an evidential argument from evil. The differences are like this. A logical argument from evil is making the stronger claim. It's saying God so defined does not exist, just as we heard. But it is incredibly difficult to defend. On the other hand, the evidential arguments from evil that are probabilistic, that are trying to show it's less likely that God exists, given specific evils, particularly what are called gratuitous evils, by which we mean things that didn't necessarily have to happen, that God allowed to happen, that he didn't have to let them happen to get whatever good he's trying to get. The evidential arguments from evil are saying something that's much softer claim. They're not saying, therefore, God does not exist. They're just saying, given this, it's less likely that God exists than that he does. Um, or just that he's, it's less likely that he exists. Uh, and they're, they're much more difficult to respond to. Uh, but Stephen has here given, um, given the response, the logical argument from evil, which is just has been put to bed in philosophy for the most part today. I mean, atheistic philosophers, by and large, don't go this route because it's incredibly difficult to defend a claim like that. So here William Rowe uh, makes this statement. Some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of the theistic God. No one, he says, no one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Indeed, granted incompatibilism, there is a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of the theistic God. But that's not all. Paul Draper says, although logical arguments from evil seemed promising to a number of philosophers in the 1950s and 60s, they are rejected by the vast majority of contemporary philosophers of religion. Michael Martin says, because of the failure of deductive arguments from evil, atheologians have developed inductive or probabilistic arguments from evil for the non-existence of God. So there you have it. Um, you can read more about that in the book that I recommend on this by Daniel, edited by Daniel Howard Snyder, The Evidential Argument from Evil, which is a compendium of various articles on this. And you can read what people on both sides of this thing have to say for themselves. But the bottom line is, this is just put to bed. Why is it so, why is it that modern atheologians, so to speak, have put this to bed? Well, one of the reasons, the principal reason, that it's easy to dismiss these is all you need is some possible justifiable reason God might have for allowing certain instances of suffering, pain, or evil. So, um, you know, for example, these, this is where we come up with these possibilities. One is um, God, perhaps God created a world that he knew would have pain and suffering in it because he knew that by experiencing pain and suffering, it would build our moral character and integrity. That makes us better people. Um, you know, the Bible seems to teach that. Uh, but uh, if you don't like the Bible, it's just evident, obviously true. Um, have you ever watched someone go through cancer and come out the other side, and it has made you a better person by watching their courage in the face of it? I mean, that's obviously true, and it's true about pain and suffering in your own life. Now, um, I don't think that's—I think that is true, and I think that we do get that, but I don't think that's the whole ball of wax. Others will give the heaven theodicy or the heaven answer to say God created a world that he knew would have pain and suffering in it because in some way it will help us to appreciate heaven all the more or in some way prepare us for heaven. Um, or at the very least, when we get to heaven, this will all have been a veil of tears. And I think all of that might be true too, but it doesn't resolve the whole problem. I think the best explanation is to say that um, God wanted to create people who um, would not be deterministic, that is, they would be free. 
Why did he want to create people who would have free will? Because that's the only way you get real love. And we know that the Bible teaches, for those of us who are Christians, and we're talking about whether this is consistent or not, um, and that is to say that, that what God wants is people who will love him and love their neighbor as themselves. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The only way you get that real love is free will. But even if you're God, remember we said God doesn't work contradictions. Uh, God can do anything, but contradictions aren't things. So uh, even if you're God, if you're going to give man free will, then you have to live with the reality, even if you're God, that man will use that for good and for evil. And there you have it. You have evil. And we could talk a little bit more about things like um, natural disasters. I mean, that obviously takes care of moral evil, the evils that man mankind does toward each other, but not necessarily what we call natural evil. But I think that whether you're a theistic evolutionist, a young earth creationist, or an old earth creationist, we can make sense of um, what we would call natural evil on the understanding that the fall of mankind happened as free choices of mankind or the individual free choice of Adam and evil resulted. And there are ways to go about that that I've discussed in previous videos. So that even that is ultimately because of free will. So um, I think that these answers are true. But if you said, well, yeah, but I don't buy those. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. All we have to answer, and this is why the logical argument fails so spectacularly. All we have to show. So Stephen is making the claim, or anyone bringing a logical argument is making the claim. Therefore, God does not exist. God does not and cannot have, given these parameters, um, omnipotence, omniscience, omnibenevolence. He cannot have a justifiable reason for allowing certain evils to take place or any evil to take place in this case. That is an incredibly strong claim. It means I don't even have to know the exact reason why God allows them, but so long as there is one that is even remotely possibly true, it means that that claim doesn't go through. So if any of these answers that I've just given are even possible, then it means that the claim that God cannot have a reason just goes out the window. That's the nature of philosophical defeaters. And that's why this logical argument is so incredibly weak that it has been pretty well put to bed by modern um, atheist uh, people working on this issue in, in philosophy. Uh, it's not that you won't find someone here or there, but I think it's interesting that if you if you look at the, uh, the, the slide that I put up there again, notice that at the bottom, and I wrote this long before this video came out in 2017 that, that Stephen's saying this in, I wrote, though the logical argument from evil has been rejected by most atheist philosophers, it is alive and well among internet atheists. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that it is, and I had no idea I'd be making this video one day. So anyway, uh, there we see responses to the problem of evil, and we see that um, it just, it just, uh, it's powerful. It's, the, in my opinion, an evidential, not the one that Stephen brought, but an evidential argument from evil is the best that atheists can do. It's the best sort of argument they can do. And it does try to do the thing that Stephen rightly says toward the beginning of this video, an atheist should be trying to do if he wants to show that God does not exist, which is to look for something incoherent in the nature of God, so to find some kind of a contradiction. And that's what you try to do with, with an argument from evil or even an evidential argument from evil. But it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And, um, and, and perhaps we could have a more robust discussion of the evidential argument if that had been brought, but that hasn't been brought. And if you'll go to, uh, if you'll just search Trinity Radio and evidential argument from evil, you can go see what I've said about that. Or, and as we're coming to the end of this video, if you decide to become a patron at uh, 
patreon.com slash Trinity Radio uh, by clicking in the top right hand corner of the screen or in the description we have it there or just typing in patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. I have actually an eight hour course. I think it's about eight hours on the problem of evil in which I go through everything related to this issue. And um, I, I think that you would benefit from that. There are five full seminary level courses with PowerPoint at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio for those that are patrons, as well as uh, free books and um uh, other episodes that we've never released and, and a lot of other things. So I hope that you'll check those out and enjoy that. But in the end, I think what we see here is um, a really ambitious claim, a really ambitious claim by Stephen that he uh, can, uh, th that this is a, a game ending sort of a thing that he has completely shown that the Abrahamic God does not exist. And what we've gotten here is number one, uh, material that has been gone over many times before. We've seen uh, a definition of God that he tried to tack things onto to make it easier to shoot it down, but even those didn't go through. We saw a discussion of what omnipotence entails and can God create a rock so big that he can't uh, lift it. But of course that is, was trivial dismissed because it was a bad definition of omnipotence. Um, we talked a little bit about um, the issue with uh, the problem of evil, but of course Stephen brought the most simple to dismiss expression of the problem of evil that atheists might bring, the logical argument from evil, and we shot that down. So in the end, what we see is Stephen's right that um, you can prove a negative sometimes. Uh, and in principle, one could prove a negative with God if they could show something contradictory in his nature. But unfortunately, Stephen is light years away from anything close to that. So with that, I've enjoyed this time together, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Trinity Radio. <laughs>